and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Well, there are only two more shows of Accent of Women for 2022, and I thought it would only be fitting to conclude the year with a discussion about the extraordinary uprising in Iran in response to a murder of a woman by the morality police. Here is an extended interview with Frida Afari over the next two weeks about the Iranian revolution. Frida is an Iranian socialist feminist based in Los Angeles. So the first question was what led up to the present uprising? And so I would say the short term, it has to be answered on both on the short term and on the long term level. Short term, what led up to it was that, um, of course, the 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 the, the forced uh, forced hijab, and the and the and the very stringent in, uh, enforcement of the of the hijab rule on women um, that has been a, a, a rule in Iran since the uh, Iranian Revolution in 1979 was taken over by Islamic fundamentalists and hijab, the hijab was made mandatory. But over the summer, the, um, the, the uh, police, the um, so-called morality police were, uh, and the uh, anti-vice police were uh, told to enforce the restrictions much more stringently. And so they would arrest women for wearing their hijab. By hijab, I mean the headscarf uh, loosely. Um, basically, women in Iran, since the Islamic uh, fundamentalists took over, since the Islamic Republic um, in, in 1979 uh, and beyond, have been forced to uh, cover their hair and they, uh, their, their clothing has to have. Uh, long sleeves, long pants, so you're not supposed to see their ankles, you're not supposed to see their arms, you're not, you're not supposed to see even one strand of hair. And so that was the immediate uh, reason that led to the uprising. Uh, and some very basic facts about the uprising, although most of you know the basics. Um, so Jina uh, Mahsa Amini, who's a Kurdish-Iranian woman, was visiting Tehran from Kurdistan, um, a, a young woman, 22-year-old woman, was arrested in Tehran after uh, her visit for um, loosely wearing her hijab. Uh, she was arrested on September 13, and then on September, September 16, the authorities announced that she had died uh, from a stroke, but she, had, she was very healthy and she had no history of uh, prior issues that would lead to a stroke. Um, that uh, and so uh, there were uh, there were signs of mass beating on her body, and so the um, that led to protests both in in Kurdistan and in Tehran, and uh, uh, and that set off the uprising that has up to now led to um, eighteen thousand arrests, over four hundred fifty people have died, and uh, one moment. Over 450 people have died, and um, uh, 22 uh, people have been uh, currently 
uh, indicted as having committed crimes against uh, God. Uh, they're called enemy combatants, and the uh, sentence for that is death. Of the 80,000 people who have been arrested, only over 3,000 of them have been identified. So there are many, many more in prison that we don't even have names for. But, we, but according to the Iranian human rights uh, organization, Harana, uh, that offers pretty uh, accurate uh, numbers, um, there are about 18,000. And uh, the protests have, have been nationwide. They've involved uh, even rural areas, small cities, and uh, mostly youth. The average age of the protesters has been 15. Uh, women, young women have been in the forefront, burning their hijabs, dancing in the street. And um, they've been joined by, by men. Um, so the protests, while they started in Kurdistan, uh, they've spread to um, other parts, for instance, the south, south of Iran, which is a, an Arab uh, national minority. And then there, um, also the Baluchistan, Sistan and Baluchistan area, which is in the southeast of Iran, bordering on Pakistan, and, uh, and, and uh, further north and um, near the Caspian Sea. And of course, in, in, in Azerbaijan, which has an Azeri or Turkic population, and of course in Tehran. So they've been nationwide. Um, it, I can't say that uh, millions have participated, by, but definitely um, it seems by, by estimates that several hundred thousand have participated nationwide. And um, the youth have been in the forefront, both as uh, high school students and uh, college students, but the labor participation has been pretty good. And, uh, and of course, labor participation doesn't necessarily mean that there, there have been um, strikes at the workplace, although there have been strikes, and I'll talk about that too. But there, um, most of the, I would say most of the young people who are participating in this nationwide, these nationwide protests are uh, working class or middle class who have had such a decline in their standard of living that they're practically working class right now. And so, um, but I mean, some of the youth have been killed who have been uh, murdered. They're, they're um, tailors and butchers and carpenters and, um, you know, so they do, they do working class jobs and, uh, and the young women too. And so in that sense, we've had a, a very good working class population in, in, in these protests. Um, some other basic facts. We've had the participation of teachers and uh, some efforts of, of, to have strikes by teachers. Um, and uh, the repression has been severe. Um, and as I mentioned, the arrests, and uh, the um, sharpshooters aim for the eyes of the protesters. At least 500 people have been either blinded or have had massive injuries to their eyes. So in that sense, this is similar to what the police did in Chile in the 2019 uprising. And uh, some of the women who have been killed, um, 
uh, have been the, the police husbands uh, claim that they either died from strokes or that they um, threw themselves off uh, off the rooftops. And so that has also been another um, common reason given for the deaths of some of the women who were killed by the security police. But the police are now using live uh, are, are now using military grade uh, weapons, especially in Kurdistan. There has been a, a major uh, transfer of, of military forces to the Kurdish region, and, and uh, live ammunition is is used on protesters. And uh, the Iranian government has also attacked um, Kurdish the bases of the Kurdish opposition in um, in uh, iraq which which borders iran and uh, they've they've killed um, at least dozens of kurdish activists in in iraq and those those is also continuing um so i think those were some of the basics in terms of the facts now let's get to the next question which is um, okay, and then the long term. What led to, led up to the present uprising? Um, long term is that uh, the um, since the 1979 revolution was transformed into its opposite, we have had a a, a police state which has uh, dominated all aspects of of human uh, the lives of Iranians, and uh, their there and and especially since uh, 2009 there have been um uprisings in iran to um uh, first to to try to reform the islamic republic and that was in 2009 the green movement uh that involved millions of people but that uh, focused on um the, uh, the demand for the reinstatement of uh, two people who had won the presidential, uh, who had were, for, uh, were front runners in the presidential election, um, and the opposition to the fraudulent election results, uh, but it it did not ask for the complete overthrow of the Islamic Republic. But since 2017, there have been uprisings in Iran that have demanded the um, end to the Islamic Republic itself. Uh, that was one. There was one in uh, December of 2017. There was one in um, November of 2019, and both involved uh, active participation of women. And then um, the the one in that we've just uh, witnessed is the one that has been the most um, uh, sustained and. Uh, has had the most nationwide participation in terms of location and class and working class participation. And it has also uh, lasted the longest. Uh, it has slowed down a bit the past week. And um, so it remains to be seen where it will go. Um, and then um, I also wanted to give you a, a few facts about context. And again, some of you probably know that these uh, already. Um, economically, Iran is in shambles, um, mainly because the Iranian government has been uh, spending um, most of the profits from uh, the sale of oil uh, for militaristic reasons, for its military participation 
in um, in uh, Iraq, in, in Lebanon, in Syria, uh, in um, Yemen, and, and, and now in Ukraine, helping the uh, uh, helping Russia uh, with its destruction of, of the Ukrainian population. Um, partly because of the sanctions, um, but mainly because of the militaristic spending and also the spending on the nuclear and drone programs, uh, Iran has, has really become bankrupt. And uh, of course, there's a lot of corruption within the regime, no doubt about that. They, they pocket a lot of money. But it's really not the corruption itself as such. It's really the militaristic spending and the nuclear and the, and the missile production and the drone production. That is just taking away all the funds that should be spent on infrastructure development and helping the population. So that's, that's part of the context. Uh, the other part of it is that during the COVID pandemic, which really has not ended, um, the, uh, there was massive, massive numbers of deaths and the government kept COVID a secret in the beginning. And so a lot of people got sick, a lot of people died and that we don't even have accurate figures. And uh, the vaccine, they were using the vaccine, uh, Sinovac vaccine from China that was not effective. And that is when they even did get the vaccine. So uh, COVID has been a major impact, has had a major impact. Then there, there's the issue of environmental degradation that uh, because of the building of dams and the um, massive construction and uh, uh, destruction of agricultural land, destruction of forests, and the production of um, oil and gas uh, without any type of serious uh, regulation and, um, and um, uh, environmental um, uh, restrictions has led to massive pollution of the air to the point that people in uh, ma major cities practically cannot breathe when they go outside. A lot of them have to wear masks. And uh, there are many days when um, um, people have to stay home because the pollution is just unbearable. So there's the economic issue, there's COVID, there's environmental degradation and a, a lack of water. The entire uh, water that uh, um, resources that Iran had in its aquifers have been uh, depleted, um, again, because of overuse. And, um, and then there have been floods and fires. So it's a nightmare in that respect. And then, of course, I mentioned the militarism and the, all, the, all the funds that have gone into militaristic purposes. So the result has been that um, of a population of about 85 million, plus plus 85 million, 65 million live under the poverty line. And I mean both absolute and relative poverty line. The absolute poverty line in Iran is really the you know, World Bank standard, which is $2 a day. So that's $60 a month for a person and $240 a month for a family of four. The, a minimum wage in Iran for, for a worker is, and that's if, if it's enforced, it's not enforced. It's about 100 and, 
um, 50. And um, so that's nowhere near what is needed even to live on over the absolute poverty line, much less the uh, relative poverty line. The relative poverty line is about anywhere from 550 to $600 per month for a family of four. And so you can see why 65 million out of a population of 85 to 88 million are, are now living under the poverty line. And the population of Iran is uh, still very young. 50% are, are under age 30, um, and uh, something like 60% are under age 40. Um, but, but at the same time, the population is literate. And uh, we have, have, have about 3,000 uh, university students, uh, I'm sorry, 3 million. Any, anywhere from two to three million university students right now. Unfortunately, I could not find accurate figures because government figures are not accurate. 60% um, of university graduates have been women uh, because uh, in a contradictory way, the Iranian government, while um, it did um, enforce strict regulation concerning the hijab and um, uh, took away many of the rights that women had under the uh, limited rights that women had under the monarchy before 1979. It did, uh, it, at least in the first, um, uh, after the Iran-Iraq war um, in the 1990s, it, it did do, uh, do some massive spending on infrastructure and they built some universities and they did allow women to go to universities, although universities are segregated. So that, in a contradictory way, led to uh, the part greater participation of women in uh, education. And, um, and as a result, over 60% of Iran's university graduates are women. I want to say a little more about the role of women. And um, I I've written an article about this, so um, hopefully that will get published soon. But uh, one of the one of the questions has been raised uh, that has been raised is is this a feminist revolution? And um, I would say there are feminist elements. Uh, well, certainly the fact that women are in the forefront and and young women, schoolgirls practically, is really really significant. The fact that they're taking off their hijabs and burning them and um, dancing in the streets uh, is really tremendous uh, in a country that has had uh, a religious fundamentalist, misogynist theocracy for an, an authoritarian system for over 40 years. Um, so, I, But I would say we, we have feminist elements. Um, some feminists inside Iran themselves say, well, in order to have a feminist revolution, we really need to have a much deeper uh, feminist content uh, for the uprising. But um, I would say some of the really strong feminist uh, elements or feminist components have been, for instance, the fact that at universities, uh, there's been a persistent effort by uh, students to desegregate cafeterias, to desegregate universities, and that's really significant. It's really in, in some ways similar to the effort of African-American youth in the civil rights movement and, and actually only African-American youth, but also the 
uh, uh, non-African American youth who joined them in the civil rights movement to desegregate um, cafeterias and and uh, other other places that uh, where uh, black and white people had to sit and dine separately. So that's a very significant development. And then um, another another I would say feminist uh, element has been that a Gohar uh, Ashley, um, uh, who's a working class woman, who's the mother of a um, a young worker blogger who was um, killed by the regime in prison um, a few years ago. She uh, went on, um, she, she publicly took off her hijab in front of the camera, holding a picture of her son and said, I'm taking off my hijab and I'm not going to accept the religion and that's forced on me. So um, that was very significant. And I, I would consider that a feminist act. Um, I would say the most feminist uh, expression uh, so far, it has been um, a series of statements by Baluch women uh, from the province of Sistan and Baluchistan, which, is, which borders Pakistan, which is the most marginalized, the most impoverished, the most oppressed, really uh, part of Iran. And its women are even more oppressed um, have absolutely no rights. Um, they live on a, under a system that's really similar to the Taliban. And so some of the, uh, a group of feminist women, Baluch women have named Dasko Haran has been issuing some statements. Um, uh, um, and uh, they've been specifically um, targeting the issue of rape and how a 15 year old Baluch woman was raped by an army general, and uh, uh, that led to a protest by the Baluch, uh, part of the Baluch population, which in turn was assaulted by the regime. Uh, and in that uh, uh, in that uh, action, uh, over 100 uh, uh, Baluch protesters who were actually part of the of prayer Friday prayer were killed. Uh, this took place two weeks after the um, protests um, against the, uh, the murder of, of Gina Masa Amini, the young Kurdish woman whose murder set off the uprising. And uh, this was also documented by various sources, including the New York Times. And uh, the uh, feminists, uh, the Dasko Haran group that has been issuing these statements, they had um, um, discussed this issue, and they um, one of the main issues, one of the main points that they made was that up until now, if a woman was raped in Baluchistan, the family would hide the, the the rape, they would kill the woman, and they would not talk about it. Whereas, what happened after the uprising, with the protests against the murder of Masa Amini, Jina Amini. The, the the families are now, or the Baluch population mostly uh, would not do that anymore. They would not hide the fact that a woman was raped. They would not uh, stay silent about it. And that women are now demanding their rights. Baluch women are not the same. And uh, they argued that in fact, the whole Baluch population is undergoing major change. And, um, 
they also um, oppose the uh, leader of the Baluch, the religious leader of Baluchistan. His name is Molavi Abdul Hamid. He has been issuing some statements recently saying that Iran needs a referendum to determine, a popular referendum to determine uh, its next form of government. And the feminist women in their statements say, do not be fooled by this man. He has collaborated with the regime for many years. He's a follower of a friend of the Taliban. He's no friend of women. He doesn't even support women's education. And uh, so when he talks about a referendum, you need to ask him what goals he has in mind for this referendum. And so they argue that instead you should listen to us and we, we, we oppose any type of oppression. And they even talk about the rights of um, LGBT, uh, lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgender people. So I would say that these statements by the Baluch women are truly the most significant feminist uh, um, expression of the revolt that we've seen in Iran since September 16th. That was Frida Afari about the Iranian revolution. Tune in next week for the conclusion of that talk and our final show for 2022. And that's all we've got time for on today's Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, that's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.